Hi, this is Mike Royce, and you're listening to Vicki Abelson's The Road Taken. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. So, DJ, you know, I'm often asked, and Wheezy, you might want to know about this because, um, well, I know you have somebody that you love, but everybody always asks me who cuts my hair, who does my hair, because I haven't changed my hair since 1985. But, um, no, because I have a very distinct style and cut that is not for everybody, but but it is pretty cool it's pretty great right it's pretty great and feathers go in the fa- and it's a really cool cut and um i started i i asked for a recommendation when i first moved out to la kathleen wilhoyt a fabulous actress <gasps> and singer you know kathleen she's fantastic i love her and um i i loved her hair and i said who does your hair i'm, I'm moving out here and oh my god to leave my hairdresser in new york i was i was traumatized because i'm one of those people i'm like a loyal person like if if i go to a doctor and i like that doctor you're my doc you're my gyno for life yep you are my dermatologist for life you know you are my yeah, so that I was going to have to leave my hairdresser. And so before I even came out here for good, I when I was just visiting, I was like, okay, I need a hairdresser. I love your hair. Kathleen sent me to Cindy Wright at Coif Salon in Studio City. And I was like a nervous wreck to let somebody I don't know touch my hair. Oh, my. I mean, my hair, yeah. it, it really is like my thing. It's like my, you know, with the feather. I mean, it's my calling card. And I was a nervous. Well, I loved what she did. Well, it's 12 years later. Nobody touches my hair but Cindy. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I can't tell you enough. I've sent more people to Cindy and every person just falls in love with her. No matter what kind of hair you've got, no matter what you got going on, no matter what style, you don't have to want the funk like I do. You can do anything. She's just the best. So I just wanted to give her a plug because I adore her and I think the world should be better quaffed. So to be better quaffed, check out Cindy Wright, Quaff Salon, Studio City. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken, Celebrity Maps to Success. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. Hey, Wheezy, DJ. How hey, Vicki. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing well. Excellent. Okay, I'm shook. I got I got to be straight up with you. Yeah. Uh, okay. On my way up here, Wheezy Studio is on Beverly Glen. Is that what this thing is? Some, some... Do not disclose my location. Okay. It's top secret. Okay. Yes, it's near Mulholland. It's it's, it's, it's in the hills. It's in a, it's a hilly It's in, in, a, it's it's in, in a, a hilly bunker. It's in a hilly <laughs> place. <laughs> and it's like a single lane. And some guy, I guess, was like double parked or something where you're not supposed to be on this single lane. And so as I was driving past our our 
rear view or our side mirrors clicked. They kissed. They kissed. And and it it wasn't loud. It wasn't banging. It was just, a, you know, like bleh. And anyway, so I see him racing after me and, you know, I'm, I'm like going and, but we're on a single lane. You can't pull over. So I pull over, you know, uh, when I make the turn to come here mm-hmm. and uh, he like dramatically like drives in front of me, you know, and like, so I can't go past wow, him. Wow, like, like I'm, a I'm, police I'm, chase. I'm stopped, yeah. right? And so he gets out and goes, we're calling the police. And he's a foreign gentleman. I I've, I know not of what, of what, mm-hmm. but he's talking with an accent. He's, he's, he's like we're calling the police and I'm like for what what happened and he said you banged my rearview mirror and I was like okay so show me and I'm looking at his rearview mirror and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it and actually now that I realize it I looked at my rearview mirror that's on the same side so my rearview mirror is probably completely fucked on the passenger side (laughs) but I didn't even think to even look over there so anyway so he gets in his car and he rolls up the window and he starts calling and I'm like and I'm trying to talk to him and he won't roll down the window and I'm knocking on the window and he won't talk to me. He won't look at me. And I was like, I have to go. I have a show. I said, I'm going. And I just go. And so now I'm like completely shook. I'm off my game. And um, I'm cops like, are going to bust in any and, moment. And, and, right, the cops are going <laughs> to bust in. I'm waiting to go out there and see that he's like egged my car or taken a baseball bat or some shit to my car. So I, I'm like very distracted. So, so I have to get to a Zen place. I have tools. Mm-hmm. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm sorry, that works for me. Um, we have tools that work in, in th- when things get crazy, right? Right. And things- my point to you is that you 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 had no ill intent. You did everything right. It was a little altercation. You pulled over. Altercation. You, di- you didn't mean to harm him. Y- he's not supposed to call the police over rearview mirrors tapping. The police should be busier than that. <laughs> well, I would hope so. But, you know, well, so, ah, so this brings me to an interesting thing. Okay. Mood transition. How huh. how do we transition? How how, how um, do med- I transition? Medication. Medication. Medi- yeah. Medication uh-huh. works. You know, yeah, that medication would work. Um, so I am going to transition my mood. I am going to reinvent my mood to one of joy and serenity and gratitude and gratitude gratitude uh, gratitude always works always gratitude always works and and reinvention actually brings me to tonight's guest that was really smooth wow oh wow that was really like nobody saw that coming (laughs) not for a mile so okay so i'm telling you guys Mm -hmm. um about oh my god it's too many years ago to count but about 20 seven-ish years ago, um, I met Mike Royce um, at the Comedy Cellar in New York, and he was emceeing. And I know that my my then husband was making about $5 that night for his set. So I imagine, and Ray Romano was on the show the first night I met Mike. And I believe Ray also made about five, was making $5. Now as the MC, Mike could have been making all of maybe $15 perhaps. It's possible. And, and we all met in this club. And what's interesting is that just a very short time later, maybe a few years later, um, Ray had his own sitcom on television. Uh, Gabe was writing, was the head monologue writer for David Letterman, which ended up being Dave World, Dave's Worldwide Pants was the producer of Everybody Loves Raymond. Mm-hmm. And then Mike ended up being 
a writer on Everybody Loves oh. Raymond, and then eventually becoming an executive producer on Everybody Loves Raymond, eventually being nominated for an Emmy for an episode of Everybody Loves, Loves Raymond that he wrote, and then winning two Emmys uh, as a producer and a writer on Everybody Loves Raymond. And so everything is two degrees of something. Well, I mean, we all connect, I, I, is, I think, my point. Um, but anyway, uh, Mike has had an extraordinary career uh, since Raymond. And, and with Raymond, uh, he and Ray together co-created uh, Men of a Certain Age. Do you guys ever say? I, yes. I love that show. Love it. And, and Men of a Certain Age, for me, was kind of like a little more serious, sort of sober, um, uh, sex in the city meets girls, meets Mike Binder's uh, Mind of the Married Man. It, it, it kind of had elements of that to it mm-hmm. um, that I loved. And as a matter of fact, our guest at Women Who Write last week was a guest on uh, Men of a Certain Age. Uh, Donnie Most guested on um, Men of a Certain Age. Um, so anyway, so that that was one of Mike's show, uh, Mike's shows, and and uh, Mind of the Married Man. I mean, my, Men of a Certain Age actually won a Peabody Award um, it, it, because it was important. It 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 had to do. It, it informed. It motivated. It inspired. It it showed. It even had the power to change lives, which we're going to talk with Mike about. I'm excited about that. Um, in addition to serving as executive producer and showrunner on, on Men of a Certain Age, Mike did In Kind with Lucky Louie. Ah, I mean, um, that show, I, I am I am a Louie fan. Are you, are you a Louie fan? Mm-hmm. Not yet. You, oh, God. I'll, I'll get there. Lucky <laughs> Louie is fantastic, and, and it was the prelude to, to Louie, which w- was the next show that he did. Uh, Pamela Alden was fantastic on Lucky Louie, and, and, and my friend Rick Shapiro was on it. It was, it was a fabulous show. Uh, Mike was also um, the, the head writer, the showrunner on 1600 Pen. Did you have, guys ever watch that? Josh Gad? And um, I think Bill Pullman played the president. We'll talk to Mike about that. I didn't know there'd be this much homework. Oh, my God. Well, this man has done a lot of work. A lot, yes. So recently, Mike executive produced and co-show ran the critically acclaimed Fox comedy Enlisted. And that one I have not seen. So I'm I'm, I'm anxious to talk to Mike about that. Um, And I know that it has to do with service. and, And that leads into this current show because Mike is now in partnership with Norman Lear. <gasps> yes. And Gloria Calderon Kellett on the reimagined One Day at a Time, which just started streaming on Netflix last week. Yes. And which I am binging with my daughter. And as a matter of fact, I talked to my daughter the other day. I, I started I, when it first dropped. I was like, okay, I'm going to watch One Day at a Time. You want to watch with me? No, and I, come on, come on. So I watched like one and two myself, and then last night I started watching three, and I invited her again. You want to watch? No. Well, she was listening out of her peripheral ear, and she heard it, and I then fell asleep after three, and I woke up, and she had then watched one, two, and three, and then at four in the morning, we watched four together, and we have a date to to finish tonight. So it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's outstanding. I've watched, how many are there? There, I think there were 13. I've watched 10. Oh, wow, yay. Yes, that homework I did, (laughs) and it was joyful. 
And I was a page on the original One Day at a Time. Get out of here. No, I have to get back in. Oh, my God. I wonder if Michael give you a gig. Um, and, well, Norman, actually, we know Norman came to, to my living room and did Women Who Write. My and, hero. And, and Mackenzie Phillips came. And we yeah. have tissue boxes because Mackenzie came and made us cry. And Mackenzie's now on, has a little role on, on the current. But, but. We've like been sitting here watching Mike shake his head while we've done all of this talking about him. But it's time to introduce him. We should him. let him talk. We should let him talk. I'm so excited to welcome to the show Mike Royce. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh. And uh, let's just reveal the real reason I'm here. You've been served. <laughs> <laughs> This is all an elaborate <laughs> guy. I'm wait. I'm waiting for there to be a knock on the door. I'm, I'm actually waiting for the for the for the handcuffs and the and the paddy wagon to come. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You have done some extraordinary. I mean, okay. Before we get into what you're doing now, and we could talk a little bit about one day at a time on top, and we're going to get to it big time later. How did you and Nor? How did it happen that you guys decided to redo this show? Norman and his producing partner Brent had mm -hmm. the idea, and literally just thought, "Let's do a." a he's always wanted to put a Latino family on t television. He had this show called, AKA Pablo, that was very short lived and not, in his mind, creatively successful. Uh huh. Um, and he always wanted to try it again, and so literally it was just. Let's try to do a Latino remake, whatever that means, uh -huh. of One Day at a Time. Mm -hmm. And he met with me, and he met with Gloria separately. And um, and he, had you and Gloria, did you know each other? Had you worked together no, before? No, no. It was funny, because they met with me first, so it's me and Brent uh, and uh, um, Norman in a room, and they're telling me, yeah, Latino remake. And I'm like, so we're going to get some Latinos, right? Because this is not... Because <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're three not, white guys sitting yeah, around, yeah. We're not exactly the voice of the community. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, they were already reading people, and they wanted me. I, you know, have experience. Uh, nice way of saying that I'm old now. Um, <laughs> Had you worked with Norman before? No. I, what brought Norman to you? I think Sony. I was between studios, and I was kind of deciding whether to go to Sony or not mm -hmm. um, on an overall deal. And they, so they set me up. It was through Sony. It's a Sony property. Uh huh. And. Um, yeah, I think they put me in touch with Norman. I had actually interviewed him for a SAG panel two months before, oh. and this is not an age comment. This is a self-deprecating comment. Oh. When I met with him, he was like, I, he didn't remember. Till a little ways in, he's like, oh, wait a minute. We did a thing. In other words, my interviewing was not memorable. <laughs> you know, like he just, he, he's been through so many interviews he, too yeah. that it's just like, oh, you, oh, I think you were, oh, yeah, you were a guy asking me questions for a while. Um, so that did not lead to it. <laughs> um but yeah, that's how it came about, and it was really a very blank canvas kind of a thing. So by the time Norman came to you, we're like, did did you have to convince him? Did he have to convince you, or was it already a marriage before you guys even met? I think they met me, they liked me, they already liked my body of work, mm -hmm. and so it was more up to me. I, I was between, you know, mm -hmm. I was at 20th Century Fox and basically had to decide whether to stay there or not, and this project was so enticing to me that I decided to... To, you know, and how could and you be the guy that could walk away and say, I turned down Norman Lear? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. That's, that that's would right. not be an easy choice to make, I would think. No, no. It was, it was very tantalizing and daunting to think about trying to do something, especially, you know, one of his, not, not even a new thing for him, but, a, you know, his old revered shows. Right. But the fact that he wanted to make it a total, just leave it up to us to reimagine it, 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 you just keep the premise of a single mom and, mm -hmm. 
Um, I have teenagers, so I am not Cuban, but I do have teenagers, and I had stuff to say about the teenagers. And then Gloria is Cuban and has a big Cuban family and all that, and it's kind of a mishmash of those two things. What made you guys decide to change the, the two daughters to a daughter and a son? Actually, Gloria and I both have a daughter and a son. Her kids ah, are younger. Uh-huh. Um, but so that felt just trying to stay true to our experiences and you know, write what we know a little bit. And also just Latino-wise, um, it felt, first of all, it's, it was we added Rita Moreno. There was no grandmother I was on the g- show. I was going to ask you, how did that happen? Oh, I love Rita Moreno. She's, okay. you know, uh, she, that happened because um, Gloria, her mother, um, always, she always describes her mother as like Rita Moreno, basically. So then when she's meeting with Norman, Norman's like, hey, you know, what if we, I mean, Gloria said, I would love to have a grandmother on the show. Who would you want to play that? Gloria says, well, I mean, you know, she always, my, my mother always, you know, I compare her to Rita Moreno and Norman's like, oh, what if we got Norman, you know, Rita Moreno? And <laughs> Gloria's like, you can do that? <laughs> uh, he's Norman Lear. He can do he's anything. Magic. He's like, um, Amazon for people. <laughs> You know, you just call, he just calls up and they just arrive the next day. Like Norman said, I should be here. You know, <laughs> He can get you anything he can do. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I have a little Rita Moreno story that, that I love. Um, I am, I'm blessed to go to Phil's pizza and movie night, yeah. Phil Rosenthal's pizza and movie night once in a while. And so the place um, to be, I, I was the, the place to be. Yes. So I was not there when this happened, but I came back the next week and there were these little placards mm. on the top of the couches. Watch your step that had never been there before. It's like in this little screen, you know, this little private screening room. He has very thick shag carpeting and, and it is a little slick and stuff in there. But I guess the week before Rita Moreno had taken a little slide and like twisted an ankle yes, or something. And I can add to that story that Rita <laughs> Rita Moreno showed up for work the next day. Oh! And in episode 11, you will notice that she's <laughs> sitting down. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that happened while you guys were already taping. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I got a call on Monday morning. Rita took a little tumble. And I had no idea it was Phil's place till like oh. later. And Phil emailed me and said, sorry, I broke Rita, Rita Moreno. <laughs> we broke your star. Oh, my God. We broke your star. Yeah, that's but It all worked out fine. Oh my God, that's hysterical. Okay, so now, so what we're going to come back to to one day at a time and how you guys, but before we leave, okay, wait, before we leave, so you're going to work with a, with a co-showrunner that you've never worked with before. Right. And you need, you need it to be a Latina, obviously. Um, I would think that it was very wise to pick a woman. I don't know if you looked yes. at men as well, but it makes a lot of sense to me on a, on a female-centric show to have it be a woman. No, we were, uh, you know, that was the other thing. It's like, so it's a Latina single mom. Yeah. <laughs> We're none of we're none of those things. So we got to find someone who's all of those things. She's not single, but basically the show, is, right, very much is sort of almost like Gloria. If she got divorced, is is a we, a we large, don't wish that on her though. No, we and she never will. She loves her husband so there much; it's very sickening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so now you're put in this in this room. You're put in this this world where you're very intimate collaboration with a co-showrunner for sure i mean so did did you give yourself the time to figure out if you guys were simpatico how does that work the answer to that question is no ah. uh and, but i mean we got very lucky or fortunate i i have i have been very fortunate to have been shacked up with people and Always had a good experience. Uh-huh. For Enlisted, you know, I was on a deal at 20th Century Fox. Kevin Beagle had created this show, mm-hmm. and they just wanted someone else who, you know, with some experience to come on and help him run it. 
and we met and I, I love the script. So he, you know, I, he, I also did a pass on the script and, you know, he handed it to me like we just met. <laughs> so he, he gave me the script and he's like, I feel like I'm letting you sleep with my wife right now. Like, you know, <laughs> like, please don't hurt it, you know. <laughs> Uh, and then I did a little, I mean, I, every, of course, everything I did, I was checking with him and, um, it became, you know, he, he trusted me, uh, we were simpatico, you know, aesthetically and that turned into a, you know, I would love to work with her again. We wrote another pilot together. So Gloria, I guess I trusted the process a uh-huh. little bit, mm-hmm. maybe just trusting myself. Uh, I had of course read Gloria's stuff uh-huh. and it was very much up my alley. And I was like, we creatively definitely are in sync. Excellent. We like the same things, so uh-huh. I'm gonna bet that how she's I met a your nice mother person. is is Gloria's show. She was she worked on that for mm-hmm. three or four years. It uh-huh. was she was on the first three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was a big influence on her mm-hmm. uh, style. But she's a playwright, and so she has a lot of uh, she puts on plays every year. She does these nights of like scenes. She's a oh giant, how fabulous! It's she's a, a force of nature, mm-hmm. um, and she really writes stuff small relationship you know, with a big emotional content to it. And that's all stuff that I love to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was like, if we had, listen, if we had met, we met uh, in Norman's lobby. Like we're both going in to start talking about the show. So it's all, the train is on the tracks. Right. And if for some reason I had come out of that meeting, like I hate her or vice versa, of course, I guess we would have stopped. But we quickly uh, were riffing together with Norman. How and fabulous. then, you know, we went to a coffee shop for two hours afterwards. We're talking about stuff and... Um, it is, you know, now I, as I say, she's my co-showrunner, co-creator, and unfortunately for her, co-dependent. I am co-dependent <laughs> on her uh, because, you know, we really, I don't do anything without her. <laughs> That's so great. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna come back to present day. Let let let's go back for yes. a time here. So so you're little Mike Royce, and and you're where'd you grow up, Mike? Where where? I grew up in uh, Syracuse, a suburb of Syracuse, Dewitt, New York. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and are you a funny kid? When, when do you realize that you're funny? I was always, I loved comedy. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I was a funny kid, but I loved comedy. What, what did you love? What, who were your heroes? I grew up with uh, Letterman, you know, and uh, Letterman was, I mean, I was like 16 when the, I watched the daytime show. Oh, yeah. You know, in 1980, which mm-hmm. was amazing. Mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live, when that started, mm-hmm. I was, you know, glued to that Second City TV. Actually, Fernwood Tonight, which oh, was Norman's God, show. Oh, my God, that was I told Norman. Yeah. It changed my life. Me my too. Fa- my favorite, absolute favorite. It's uh, For me, I think it was, I mean, I think I liked it when it was on. It was only on for a year or whatever, but I, mm-hmm. I think I liked it better than all the other things I just mentioned, even yeah. though those are obviously classic shows. Yeah. So yeah, all that sort of, um, you know, a uh, uh, Big giant comedy wave that happened starting in the mid seventies. And are you are you right? Are you an Englishman? What what's your? Are you writing when you're in school? What's your thing? I had two very close friends, mm-hmm. and we made Super Eight films <laughs> with no sound. Generally speaking, underexposed, uh-huh. couldn't see anything or hear anything. <laughs> um, just blobs on a screen, and we're like, look how funny, you know, look how great. <laughs> look at the horror movie that you can't see. Um, and we, so we would make films together. And um, I then later got into high school th- in theater. Mm-hmm. So I was a you know, wannabe actor. I really loved to being in shows. Do you, you know. remember your first play? Yeah, I was. I remember. <laughs> like when you were like little kid? Uh, my um, I Gotta Do That moment yeah. was at the Pajama Game, oh, a yeah. middle school production of uh-huh. the Pajama Game. Yeah. Maybe the corniest musical of all time. My mother was in it. Yeah, she did Steam Heat. Oh, you! I mean, yeah. a fantastic. It's it's a really a fantastic musical, but yeah. it is not. 
Um, I think I, so here's what happened. We were making a James Bond film and we needed a girl. There's three nerd boys making a James Bond film. Let's go get a girl. Somebody's mom talks to somebody's mom and there's, here's a girl who's an actor. Let's go see her play. So we go see this sort of froofy, it's my two friends were kind of horrified. Let's put it that way. And I, 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 I they were not into musicals. And I'm watching this thing like my eyes are just wide open. Like I, I got, I, I don't know what's happening, but I have to do that. I have to be part of that. That looks wow. amazing. You know? And people are singing and dancing. I don't know why it's happening. It was really like a weird, but I fell in love with it. And um, we did not use the girl as our James, but we did not have a girl. Uh, we, I think we just stopped making the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it did turn into um, me auditioning for the high school audition for, um, what was it? Anything Goes. Nice. You know? And uh, the rest is high school history. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so, did you do that through high school? Did you then? Yes. You, so then you were like a drama. I was a total of. drama-rama. Yes, exactly. Yes. The chorus, in the chorus room all the time and all that stuff. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And uh, so that you were one of the few straight guys in, in that situation. So you got you had girls. I mean, yes. <laughs> in my neck of the woods, there were certainly, um, it was just a lot of girls. Yeah. And that be, yeah, was an instant bonus. <laughs> I, I think I formed a relationship. I mean, I think my girlfriends were all dance partners. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. just, <laughs> you're just in proximity. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But no, it was fantastic. Uh, it was I. My whole world opened up. I did uh, meet girls, <laughs> but they're very wonderful girls. And um, yeah, I kind of traversed. Uh, I was one of those people who kind of traversed cliques too, because I was in the political club, and mm-hmm. then, you know, I sort of went back and forth. I had, I had, I was in cliques that hated each other essentially. Nice, you know. And were you into sport? Were you like in sport? Was sports part of that deal at all? I played hockey, but they did not. That was extracurricular. They didn't have a hockey team at the high school, mm-hmm. so I was a secret jock, like that no one knew about, and I could never prove it. <laughs> and I also never looked like it, so it was uh, you know one one day a year we would play street hockey mm-hmm. in like when it rained out we'd be in the gym, and I was the king. Nice. That was the one day. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay. And so, are you? When did you start writing? When did when did that enter your your world? I guess when I was applying to colleges, I decided I didn't want to be an actor for some reason. I'm. I, I can't even figure out quite. I think I was a little scared of it, mm. but that I did want to make films. Mm-hmm. I had you know written in high school too, and um and then so I was a film major at Ithaca College uh-huh. and a writing minor. Okay. And those two things combined pretty quickly. My senior year, I tried to write a screenplay and got very depressed. I couldn't finish it. This is now the beginning of my numbers of uh, I almost gave ups. Okay. So, <laughs> well, we want to hear about the I almost gave up. So, so, and are you doing stand up yet? When, when, how does, no. when does stand up f- happen for you? I moved to New York after college. Okay. And I tried to get a bunch of PA work and actually was successful doing it. So, your it. dream moving to New York, though, was to get into film. Yes, it was not. I, I wasn't uh, um, very focused. Oh, I, I, I should say I just moved to New York. My my roommate was there. Mm-hmm. New York is where things happen. Uh-huh. I love New York. I grew up, you know, in, in Syracuse is, uh, you know, a classic sort of sleepy upstate place. And mm-hmm. every time I went to New York, it was like a jolt of I just loved it so mm-hmm. much. So I really just want to be there. Mm-hmm. And let's try to figure out what do I do here? I didn't. So even you really, really didn't really didn't know. Is what totally. I'm you really didn't know. I, okay. If I had been quote quote unquote smart, I would have moved to LA. You know, <laughs> it still would have been a really bad move because I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. But I did. I wasn't thinking too far ahead. I was just like, well, New York is where there's stuff. Let's mm-hmm. go there. And my, okay. 
my uh, college roommate had a place and it opened up and, you know, uh, but the thought out plan was not really there. Okay. So you get to New York. And so how are you making a living when you get to New York? I started trying to get crew work because mm-hmm. that's what they told you to do in film school. I'm mm-hmm. calling down and getting PA work. I, I did I did a Rolaids commercial uh, between in the 1986 uh, World Series uh, between Game Seven and Game Six. I just want to say, by the way, you have an incredible voice. I mean, you, <laughs> no, you really do. I mean, you have the resonance is is amazing. Uh, you know, I have good days and I have bad days. Uh, I feel a really like, good you know, day. Yes, it, thank you very a really much. Really good it's, day. Um, yeah, and uh, you saw all these little jobs, but it's so, you have to really hustle to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you have to, if you want to go down that road, you know, maybe you'll become a cameraman, maybe you'll become oh, all these great things. But I kind of quickly realized I'm putting so much energy and I'm not sure where I'm going to end up with it. And I really do want to write. So why don't I just get some job and I'll focus on writing it at night, like something more predictable than these 14-hour PA gigs. Right. And all this kind of stuff, and then spending all the day trying to get another one. Uh, so I tempt, you know, I signed up with Manpower, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked for MetLife for a long time. I met worked for Citibank for a good three years. I was an administrative assistant to this. Uh, uh, she was a uh, vice president of something, systems and technology. Um, and while you're doing this, are you actually doing what you said you were going to do? Are you writing at night? Yes, not well. That's impressive if you were actually doing it. Well, but very discouraging. So when I say I'm writing at night, I'm like trying. My Mm -hmm. friend had an idea for a sitcom, and I mean, we don't know. We're in New York. There's no sitcoms in New York. We don't know what we're doing. And I wrote this sitcom based on his idea because I do have a good work ethic. I can say that. Mm -hmm. But I really want to stress. I'm. I'm not. I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. This sitcom is the worst i mean it's so <laughs> i mean i'm just saying uh, you know i had graduated and now i'm 23 i i had gone to school for writing um people who are 23 or there are people who are geniuses and you know you would look at this and you wouldn't say like maybe it's the worst thing in the world but you would say i don't know what's happening here <laughs> Okay, so now, you know, did you learn structure? Did you learn how to write sitcoms? Was that part of your college deal? Did you? Not really. I had a great, I loved Ithaca College so much, mostly because they exposed me to all these different things. I had a great film, many great film professors um, who were either super theoretical or um, uh, uh, there was, you know, my nonfiction professor. She was, you know, um, super feminist like like wow telling us you know so getting us all this material in front of us that that i never would have seen in my little sheltered life growing up and so it made me more creative later i think at the time i i wanted to be spielberg so right. i would write pretty conventional and you know i mean I really, okay so what was your highest dream you wanted to be spielberg what what exactly was your highest dream then i mean i think I, like i watched et and 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 i mean i cried it was i think it's one of the first movies i ever cried in in a theater in a public mm-hmm. place and uh later in in school i wrote something that was like a three-page dialogue that was really just the beginning of the movie where the family's hanging out. <laughs> yeah. It had nothing to do with aliens or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I was not interested in science fiction. Okay. I, nothing like that. Uh-huh. But it was more just the dialogue. I remember it was like a woman and her ex-husband was coming over and she was really worried that he was coming over because of like being judged by him or something. Clearly just, I, I mean, I'm sure it's terrible. But <laughs> but I, I remember, you know, it like feeling right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, so that, I didn't know what I was doing, but that was sort of like the kind of stuff I wanted to do. You know, I, and I started writing for my senior year project. I, I uh, said I would write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote it, I don't know, about these two boys who were trying to kind of get out of their boring life. But I couldn't. It was depressing and discouraging. I could not. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and structure-wise, like I didn't write an outline. I didn't, I didn't do anything right. Okay. Okay. And so I got to page 30, and I was like, I don't think I can do the rest. Of it. I, I, You know, for a very long time, I could never get past page 30, and then I decided, why don't I go into comedy in half hour? Then you don't have to. <laughs> that that's only has to be 30 pages. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I'm just saying my work ethic was good, mm-hmm. but it is, as you know, and as all writers know, you, you know, you go into a hole and get, it's, it can be really, really discouraging when you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Were you, were you good with this set of punchline? What, what, did comedy come easily to you? Well, that's the thing. So I think after going through this little sitcom thing, mm-hmm. I was kind of a little wayward and just what's happening next and i always 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 if you were to put truth serum in me when i was 14 or whatever want to be a stand-up comedy you know, a comedian okay never ever thought i'd have the you know balls to do it oh so how did that happen new york new york gave me bravery because interesting at college some of my friends did it mm-hmm but I was terrified you bomb and then you're there with your audience for four years. You know, hey, there's the guy, remember you suck, remember? I mean, that's super brave to me to go up in front of people who like you see every day all the time again. It's like being on a cruise ship, you know, when you when you are an open micer. So the fact that I could go out to Pips in Brooklyn mm-hmm. where they had the famous open mic there and I knew I would see a collection of 20 people or whatever. You remember the first time you stood up, I'm sure. I do, very, very, very uh, uh, specifically. Um, I, my first laugh was um, at the expense of another comedian, so really a big faux pas. <laughs> uh-huh. What was it? What happened? He was a guy who came in and bumped me, and I thought, oh, no, he's going to be fantastic. And it turned out that he was he was a little bit, he was just a weirdo, mm. and they wanted to get him in and out, and he was bothering them. And I guess he's a guy who came back week after week and just uh-huh. annoyed them. So he went up and he did everything was like, his routine was something like he would say a joke and then he'd go, now I'm going to do that same joke from as if it was in my home country of Transylvania. (laughs) Then he would turn around, put in the fake vampire teeth and turn back around and do the joke again. And so it was silence, but also what is happening? You know, so he, you know, did not do well. And I got up. They brought me up very quickly. And I just said, uh, I like to start talking. But first, I'd like to do my first joke as if from translating, you know, and I turned around and then I turned, you know, back in as if to put the vampire teeth in and say, no, no, I'm, just, I'm screwing around, you know. Um, and there was it was sort of a relief joke. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, later, I learned don't make fun of the other comedians. That's not unless they're friends of yours. But. So yeah, I, I, I so, so just to writing wise, if you look at that sitcom, that was terrible. It's okay. because I didn't know how to write a joke. Okay. And for me, stand up taught me the rhythms of comedy that later came to be useful in writing comedy. And I don't think I, there are lots of good comedy writers who don't need to do stand up, but I did need to do stand up mm. to for to get to where to be a good writer. You know. 
So, okay, so now you get the bug, you do stand up, and I'm assuming that goes well from you. That goes well for you, right? It, it did, yes. It took me, I, I would generously say I was neither a quick study nor a, a guy who just hung around forever. Within a few years, I was making some money, not a lot, getting a little work here and there. I you had, were a very. Uh, stable, dependable MC. You MC'd yes. a lot. That was that was basically how I became any good. Later was the Bill Grunfest mm-hmm. used to uh, you know ran the comedy cellar and MC'd was the house MC. He was MC'd everything. He moved to LA because he got a writing job on designing women. If I'm not mistaken, right, right. And they, suddenly there were all these MC. I mean, the whole place was opened up. So they really threw me in to the deep end just because they needed people. So that wasn't something you had been doing? A little bit. I mean, and I had a little bit of a talent for it. Mm-hmm. And later I was sort of trapped there. Like I had to get out because I was only emceeing and my act was kind of suffering. Uh-huh. But the Comedy Cellar definitely made my career as a stand-up. They allowed me to get so much stage time and develop a persona and and just, you know, the stage time is, you know, invaluable. The, and then by the way, at... at- Comedy Cellar is where uh, Chris Rock has worked out his stuff all these years, and, and Ray Romano. I mean, a lot and of Louis. people. It's Louis. A, it's on I Louis' mean, show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have have uh, Seinfeld. Uh, has yeah, it's it's gone interesting. back in later years. It was always a pretty big club. It's mm-hmm. become it's really become the biggest now. Mm-hmm. I think Louis is. I mean, it's on his show all the time. Right. But yeah, it's an amazing place, and Esty still books it. <laughs> She's still there. Um, so yeah, that's how it. Okay, so so you're doing stand up, and while you're doing stand up, so you're writing your own act, obviously, right? Um, so you've learned how to write a joke. Um, Some would argue not, but yes, <laughs> theoretically. And, and while you're doing that, are you still working? Are you are you still writing scripts? And you, are you doing that? I didn't do any writing, writing for probably. You know, eight, nine, ten years, mm-hmm. really, because I was really just a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Then other stand-ups get shows, and you know, before Ray mm-hmm. uh, and I got involved with that, um, there was other, there were just other little opportunities that came along. Such as, I, I, my first writing job really was uh, on this um, MTV show that the Sklar Brothers had. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. them. Um, it was called Apartment Two F, and only lasted a season, um, but. Alternative comedy, this this was 1997, I think. Mm-hmm. So alternative comedy had really, you know, since like 94, 95, it started to become a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I was still pretty stuck in the clubs, and I felt like I was fossilizing a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the Sklars were big into the alt-comedy scene. They kind of helped pull me into it. Uh-huh. And it became really creatively fulfilling for me to get on these other stages and do stuff that I couldn't do in the clubs. Uh-huh. And they liked what I was doing there and the alt comedy stuff, not my stand-up. So, like, what was that? What did that look like? Like, what was that for you? Mostly, I did little goofy monologues and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. mainly, I started doing a thing with a a slideshow. I I loved and I still love when I get there walking around New York because you see a different thing every five seconds. Mm -hmm. And I would walk around and you'd see, like, oh, my God, that's so funny. That's so funny. Signs, people. Uh, objects, things in display, you know, c- construction sites. It's just a crazy quilt of hilarious shit. Right. 
and you you almost wish you would take somebody with you and just like point so you can riff on it, you know. <laughs> and so then I sort of thought, well, what if I just took pictures of it and then I'll just do a slideshow and I'll write jokes and comments. Uh huh. And that's what I did. So I it, it became this sort of one man show called It's Fun to Judge, uh, <laughs> which was you know we like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I did that in little drips and drabs. You know, I would do a few minutes here, a few minutes there, and then I kind of piled it all together in a much too long but still fun <laughs> one-man show uh, later. So, they, yeah, they, they like that stuff. Uh-huh. I, I also did a thing for them where I was – by this time, I was a warm-up comedian. That was a, that was a source of income for me, and that was a big Ah, what, what shows did you do warm-up for? Well, my first – Actually, John Stewart gave me my first job. Wow. Super loyal, tremendous guy mm-hmm. uh, for his original John Stewart show on MTV, mm-hmm. and I did. I, th- I think I did both seasons of that, if I remember. What right. was that show um, that he did with Patty Rossborough? Um, do you remember uh, that? Yeah, he well, he the short attention span theater. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Gabe subbed in for John at one point, yeah. and, and a lot of people subbed in. Yeah. Uh, I think I forget. I guess that was right before. I think right, right before he got Short the Attention MTV Span thing. Theater was like I think his first thing. Yeah, yeah, right? that that sounds right. Uh-huh. That sounds right. He had a show on MTV called "You Wrote It, You Watch It" or something like that. I remember that. I think one that was that uh-huh. was short lived, but it starred the state, who were then becoming a big deal, and of course they're all scattered across show business now. Super successful people. Um, so yeah, John Stewart show. But then I was my main job that lasted a number of years. There were two of them for warm up. One was uh, later on was for Spin City, which was great and oh, led wow. to uh, uh-huh. doing a script and all. But my uh, meat and potatoes and big source of income was the Maury Povich show. Nice. <laughs> that must have been a very interesting audience. It was. You have characterized it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> they were actually, uh, it was in many ways fantastic because a lot of times I was the only funny thing they were going to see that day. Oh. Because the show, it was before what his show is now. Um, it was his st- show is still on. I think so. Oh my yeah. god! And oh, I mean, it's wow. it, it was still it was more of an Oprah type show where the right. topic would just change every day, mm-hmm. and sometimes it was super depressing, and sometimes it was only kind of depressing. Uh, <laughs> no, there would be there would be happy shows too, but you never knew. And I did. I ended up doing a joke about it, like because you know, saying I'm the warm up comic for the Maury Povich show, and I'm the guy who's supposed to get everybody excited, like woo, everybody, hey, woo, how about some energy? Hey, all right, here's a molester. You know, <laughs> like that's my. <laughs> Um, so, but it was great. I, and I ended up, um, it was in the morning and I would have to like be out till 3 a.m. doing stand up, and I would crush coffee and run oh. on and just get the, try to adrenaline my way wow. through the stand up. Um, but it was generally fun because like I say, I was, I was going to ask one. you, was it fun or is it thankless? What, what is that like? It was to? both. It was okay. a, it was a good training ground mm-hmm. for, um, pain. <laughs> And now, are you are you like just on automatic pilot? Are you doing the same jokes every day? Are you there trying to all use of some that. of? You're trying to put some of your stand up in. I'm guessing. Yes, yes, but it was hard because it wasn't. It was a very loose situation. So you know how it is when it's like you're performing and like all the lights are on and the audience is talking. It's not like just focused on you, right? You know, right? This was, and my job was really to get them kind of lively make sure they knew to ask questions mm. and and to be super realistic about it they would almost always sometimes they do one show and that was great because that was just quick and you get out because mm-hmm. you just do the beginning you don't have to do too much in the in between um normally they shoot two shows and it was supposed to be 15 minutes in between each show mm-hmm. often it would be 
45 minutes. Oh, wow. An hour. Oh, wow. Because they're prepping and getting the other guests ready. Right. The guests are late, and whatever. you have to just keep... Mo- and I have to lie to the audience because they don't like them going to the bathroom because sometimes when they go to the bathroom, they go, why don't we just get the hell out of here? Oh, God. <laughs> like we saw one show. Why do we have to stay for another one? So I would be the cajoler slash... You know, general, like try, demanding everyone stay at the same time. Then I'm trying to entertain them. Wow! <laughs> and it, it so it was well, it tested the limits of how long I can talk and get anyone to think anything. You know, <laughs> like uh, laugh or make any kind of noise or whatever. Um, and that is what a warm up does. You know, right, right. So I never evolved into. I mean, these guys out here are geniuses. They like they can go on forever because they have tricks and they have a, they have an act and I just learned how to babble you know <laughs> and that worked for some shows for some shows that's not enough you know um, but it was good it was it allowed me to form a, a mailing list and you know um, oh really you could do that while you were yeah I would but after a while there's repeat people coming and I'm like well they're fans of me so I nice. might as well get them to my show you know uh-huh. um, so and would was, they come and they'd come and see you do stand-up and stuff yeah they'd come sometimes oh. or they'd see you know they came, I, big source was the one-man show thing they came to Caroline's when I did that and nice um, yeah yeah it was a, it was a very good thing but um, I, I this the Squire brothers I was trying to get off on a big tangent there but the basic thing was I had done a lot of warm-up and in this alternative comedy thing the Squire brothers wanted me to do a alternative warm-up for a show they were doing okay so i then was able to lampoon myself and go on ahead of them and do this totally over the top super enthusiastic goofy (laughs) cheesy guy um they love that and that's why they hired me to write for them and that was my first writing job and then i did that character for the warm-up for their show too okay okay thank you so so now you've segued from that. How do you how how does the Raymond thing happen? Ray uh, was you know we were friends just along with many other standups together, and he now was a couple seasons into the show, and he's now famous, and he was doing a tour, mm-hmm. and he hired me to uh, me and a bunch of people, mm-hmm. you know, to spread out like opening spots. So super nice. Uh, on the tour, he told me he was writing this book of his standup, mm-hmm. and he's giving me pages. And he was asking me for like feedback and ideas and stuff. And he liked what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of grew into he hired me to fax. Then it grew into he hired me to just come out and basically rewrite the book with him. Wow. In his office for two months, you know, um, and get it ready. And um, that led to then when there's a job opening the next season that uh, they offered it to me. Fantastic. And, and okay, and so from that, from a writer, then you end up being a producer, executive producer. Yeah, I mean, listen, the executive producer when you're a writer mm-hmm. is different than when you're executive producer when you're a showrunner, which is also different from other kinds of executive producers. So really what happened was I just, uh, I climbed the ladder and got more money. You know, I became more correct. experienced. Right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do a lot of or producing any stuff. producing yeah. on Raymond, no. Right. No, okay. Phil was obviously... The, he's an amazing showrunner and was the showrunner, and we just kind of, yeah, we were writers. And the the script that you had up for an Emmy was, that I lost. <laughs> okay, come on, yeah, but, no, but you course. were nominated for an Emmy. <laughs> I lost to another Raymond writer, so it was actually uh, doubly uh, sweet and doubly depressing. No, Tucker Tucker Colley won that year for actually. Maybe the most classic episode of Wh- which episode? Raymond. It's called Baggage. It's about they have a suitcase that no one, 
neither one of them admits to it being in charge of basically <laughs> I, and they they take it up the stairs yes, I, I remember up the that stairs, episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it's probably the one of the ones that people remember the most you know? and what was what was yours that was in c- competition with that mine was called counseling yeah and uh i love it because it actually was the first act was very much based on my life Ooh. the second act was very much based on the other raymond writer's life so i um we're having friends over for dinner and we're cleaning the house, my wife and I, and I'm bitching and moaning and she's bitching, we're fighting, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm fighting because I'm like, why can't, why do we have to make the fake house? Why can't, I mean, this it's not like we live in squalor, just like, why are we like making this fake place when people come over? Why can't, we should just live like this all the time if we're gonna be this like anal about when people <laughs> come over. So I'm being a dick, obviously. <laughs> um, but we're fighting, it was a fight. Uh-huh. Then my friend later, my friends come over, it's all sort of water under the bridge. Um, my friends, married couple, start talking about we've been going to counseling and it has been amazing. We don't fight anymore. And they're kind of describing stuff that they're fighting about that we had just fought about that morning <laughs> and how they don't do it anymore and their relationship is perfect. And I'm just watching this all play out in front of me like, oh my God, I'm tonight I'm going to get told that I'm going to counseling. <laughs> this is, a, you know, because my wife is reacting in this way. Oh my God, that's amazing, you know. And, uh, then we got, and this is literally like the first scene of the show is a teaser where they're fighting. The second scene is this dinner where the people are having a, you know, displaying how great therapy is. And then what happened was I went to bed. And so in the next scene, they go to bed. And I turn to my wife and I go, I don't want to go to counseling. <laughs> I just say that. Then, and, and my wife was like, what? What do you, no, I mean, obviously you were like in love with everything that happened. And she said, no, no, we don't need, not us, no, them, it's good for them. And that, so that was the end of it on my level. In the show, that's what Deborah does, and Ray's like, oh, great, great. And then there's sort of a beat, and he's like, we're going to counseling. Yeah, we're going to counseling. <laughs> this, I, I, I remember that episode that you've, that you've run through with. That's fab. Okay, so so you you are right. So, and did you really write this? Because we hear stories about the showrunners come in and they rewrite the whole thing, and right was that was that happening on Ray, or was your script really your script? And it was it was both because, yeah. like I say, the second act was all about them going to counseling, which I had never done with my wife. I see, and of course there were writers in the room who had done that, mm-hmm. and so we took from you know the manipulation that Ray does, took from like somebody talking about how they go in there and so they're a really good guy when they're in there, and then they leave, and suddenly the <laughs> wife's like. And his wife, his wife was like, who the hell was that? <laughs> Why, what's that performance you just put on, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and, and it always, it, it, with, with Raymond, it was super, Phil, you know, was very, um, I, I'm going to use the word nurturing, even though I don't think he would like that word. It, 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 I think you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you, listen, if you write a great draft, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to, you're going to be allowed to see a lot of it. Uh, played fabulous. out That's but fabulous. at the same time everybody would give great notes and always 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 improve it mm-hmm. and so you you know some shows you feel like i'm just writing this draft and it's all going to get changed and i don't feel any creative uh, fealty to it but with raymond you wanted you were incentivized to i'm going to write my best i'm really want to do this you know well because uh you know you could see a lot of this on television was it was it a nurturing as opposed to competitive writers room was it, there must have been elements of both in there i would yeah. imagine i mean competitive is probably too large mm. we just you know it's everyone wants to get jokes in so right. but we were all friends it was a very very friendly 
um, good shit giving, you know, room and and everybody had been around. A lot of them were there for a very long time. So yeah, and Ray's and, a very loyal guy who brought in a lot of friends and the best. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's uh, he's a unicorn, really. The, the fact that he would be in that room and not in any way be like a star. The moment he came in, he was just one of the writers, and we yell at him. And he, you know, like I, I mean, I just mean like we were comfortable. Oh, tell us a story. Yeah, I, I'm saying that like we were getting fights. Yeah. I just mean like he. There was no star. There was no like, oh my God, kid gloves. The right, the star right. is here. We got to worry about what we say. Nothing like that. It was all hilarious shit giving back and forth always. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so how did you guys create um, Men of a Certain Age? How did that happen? That was after Lucky Louie, and I was waiting around. For okay. A while. Oh, we have to. We have to <laughs> stop. We, we have. We have to. We have to go back now. <laughs> Louie, Lucky Louie, Jesus. Oh, so ha- okay. So I know Louis C.K. was around in those days from Comedy Cellar and all yes. that. So you knew each other. Yes. So now he wants to do this show, and had how does that happen with you and Louie? He had done a pilot for CBS based on his life the year before. And it didn't go, and he felt a little bit like it was too networky. He was really trying to be a network, you know. He was trying he to was? play play the game. Wow, yeah. he's married, yet he kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me uh, try to make myself palatable to, you know. He thought he could do his version, mm-hmm. and he was not super happy with the results. Although he was, he still wanted to try to appeal to a mass audience. Mm-hmm. HBO, I guess, talked to him. Can you do the same thing, but re- be more you? Don't be afraid. Obviously, you saw the show. He was not afraid. <laughs> and uh, he knew then I was coming off Raymond. And I think he liked the idea of, you, you know, he, we were friendly. We mm-hmm. weren't great friends, but we were friendly. And he thought, there's a guy I can work with. And, you know, Louie was not going to be a, a shrinking violet. He didn't want a guy to come in and just ride herd over him. So I think partly this was my first show running gig. So me partnering with him, you know, he considered us partners and mm-hmm. and so that's why it was a good a good partnership like that. You know. Um and yeah, that you know, we we <laughs> we did that for a season. They ordered more scripts. We thought they were going to order a second season, they didn't and then uh um that's when Ray and I started talking about Men of a Certain Age. Okay, so now so now this is a very different show. Men of a Certain Age is a very different kind of show than than Lucky Louie or than Everybody Loves Raymond. How how did you guys make that decision to to make that turn there? We were talking just like Ray was actually so it's a, maybe a year and a half two years after Raymond and he wants to get into movies but he's kind of as he says, he's kind of unemployed. Like, and it wasn't because you know he could have picked many, many projects. Right. But he hadn't really found the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about let's write a movie. And we started talking, what are we going to write a movie about? We're, then we're just shooting the shit and just talking about our lives. Mm-hmm. And I'm mid forties, he's fifties, and it got very existential very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it really was there was like a change in our lives. Like we were taking stuff. We, you have that moment where you're sort of on the top of the mountain. Maybe the top is maybe a bad way to put it. But suddenly you're looking down going, is this as good as it gets? Is it all downhill from here? Mm-hmm. For Ray, he had been on this giant hit show. How could anything so get right, better? Right, you know? right, right. And he's 50 or whatever, 48 I think at the time. And uh, so even as happy and successful as he is, it, it to look ahead and see oh is the best behind me is a you know pretty awful feeling no matter how successful you right are. that has to be yeah yeah and 
So that's the celebrity version of that feeling. Mm-hmm. But that is what a midlife crisis is. Right. And I myself was like, well, lucky Louie got canceled. And is this, I guess it's over for me too. You know, maybe I, I don't, you know. And these are sort of, again, the Cadillac versions of, uh, you know, of a midlife crisis where you've mm-hmm. had some success and you're worried about more success. But still, the feeling is, is a relatable feeling amongst people of that age. You just start taking stock of yourself in your 40s. And um, we came up with these characters who, you know, people around us, the single guy who's, you know, never really made it, um, know a lot of people like that, mm-hmm. married couple with kids, you know, burdened by a job that he doesn't want. Mm-hmm. You know, we know a lot of people like that. Um, and, you know, Ray wanted to not play the married guy. He wanted to do something different. So divorce is a thing that happens <laughs> a lot. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, a person who suddenly kind of gets the rug pulled out from under them um, unexpectedly, maybe. Maybe they thought everything was going well, but also he contributed in the story. You know, he's, he's got gambling problems, mm-hmm. um, which Ray brought from his own life a little bit. Um, so this was all stuff we were talking about. And, and it just suddenly felt like, well, why don't we try to make it into a show? Mm-hmm. And uh, HBO learned we were doing it. We were doing it totally on spec. Uh-huh. Um, HBO started hired us to, to develop it. They eventually passed, but then TNT uh, bought it. Wow. You know, it's interesting because Ray had such huge success in comedy, but for me, I prefer his dramatic work. Um, yeah. I thought he was the best thing on vinyl, which was a show that I didn't love, but I loved Ray on it. Well, I, I have a secret story about Ray where I knew he was that good an actor before everybody else, even though that's not probably true. Uh, <laughs> but like, obviously people were surprised, I think, by men of a certain age that I, he absolutely. shared the screen with Andre Brower, arguably the greatest <laughs> actor in the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, like he's on every Emmy ballot. Scott Bakula, a phenomenal, absolutely. amazing talent. Mm-hmm. He can do everything. And also maybe the nicest, nicest guy I've ever met. Wow. Um, so he's holding the screen with these two icons, mm-hmm. right? And doing a good job with drama. Right, right. And I saw him do this monologue in like 1992 in Joanna Bexson's acting class. I don't know if you're familiar with her. I know who she is. Um, he did a thing where he started doing, stand, you know, everyone's doing their thing or whatever. He started doing basically his stand-up about his dad. Mm-hmm which he had a bunch of jokes about him. And then he started telling a story about his dad changing the answering machine message. On he, His dad broke the code on his answering machine at home and would then leave, change their outgoing message. And it drove his wife crazy. <laughs> and she, he would also listen to their messages and then leave them a message about what was on the messages. <laughs> And so it's really hilarious because that guy, Dre's father, was really dryly funny. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe not for everybody. Okay. And at this moment, not for Ray's wife. <laughs> so he said his wife got – basically, I think the thing was he, he – um, there was some personal message that he then listened to and said something about. Mm-hmm. And it really made her upset. And she was, she was really upset. And Ray was then, so Ray's in the monologue now, Ray's getting upset. And he's like, oh, just my father judged me so crazy. I wish he was here so I could just talk to him. So now it's transitioned from stand-up into like kind of a serious thing. Mm-hmm. And he te- does the classic actor move. He takes a chair and he turns it around and talks to the chair, like his dad's in the chair. It was, and then it's just um, just wow. an emotional speech, you wow. know? And it was so good. Wow. You know, and it wasn't like 
fireworks, like uh-huh. crying or whatever. But it was just moment to moment, amazing, dramatic acting. Wow. And you just go, wow, that guy really knows what he's doing. You know? And then it took a lot of years till he yeah, brought that out. But you see it on the show. He doesn't get enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you give him credit and you know. But the reason that show was so good was because Ray has the ability to do that broad sitcom acting, but it doesn't seem broad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very truthful moment to moment. Mm-hmm. Then when he's doing another style, which was this very naturalistic men of a certain age, sort of premised on Friday Night Lights a little bit, that kind of style, he just, the race thing is he's truthful. Mm-hmm. He's just super truthful. Mm-hmm. So he is he going to be, uh, you know, um, is he going to be De Niro where he's like gaining 50 pounds and doing like a, a giant range of roles? Mm-hmm. Probably not, although I don't want to keep him from that if he wants to do that. But his thing is he stays true to every moment that he's playing. And it's, you know, I think it's genius. And now he's getting credit for it. But I just want to say I'm a genius for noticing it. That's the point of the we'll story. We'll give you that genius noticing credit. <laughs> okay, so so fast forward. So now we're going to get back to one day at a time. But but I, I read that you're developing a version of Big. Is this true? Well, that is... Unfortunately, in hibernation, that was the thing I did with Kevin Beagle, who uh, created Enlisted. Okay. Uh, and it's now kind of dead. It was at twentieth. Oh, um, I, I love Big. It, it was, I, I, in a way, it was a precursor to One Day at a Time. Now that I think about it, because it's this. I mean, you real. Who's going to mess with that movie? It's one of the best movies ever. It's so good. But me and Kevin, Kevin, we just started riffing. You know, twentieth was interested in doing. Of course, movie properties, they're always interested. Mm -hmm. And we started riffing about a newfangled big series, essentially where the first season would be following this kid, you know, who who becomes a man. Mm -hmm. Um, But each season being a different wish, basically using the Zoltar machine as a transitional device so maybe the second season so he'd only get big once for like a 10 episode okay our our thing was it's like fargo but for comedy like Uh it changes every season you know Uh and the and the thing about big is if you remember the movie hell do i remember the movie i've seen it like a thousand times it's 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 amazing how times change because it's still an amazing movie but like tom hanks shows up well sorry um Elizabeth Perkins shows up at his apartment Mm -hmm. and it's filled with toys Mm -hmm. and she doesn't run screaming from the, you know, I mean, it's, if you see it now, you're like, there's, this guy is not to be, the police need to be called. Yeah, he's got the bunk beds. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, the conceit of the movie is like, oh my God, this amazing childlike Mm -hmm. persona is so much better than our cynical adult Mm -hmm. lives. And, you know, this guy who's 20, whatever he is, 28, 30 in the movie. Mm I, I wish I could have, you know, look at all these games and his, you know, and, and if he's there playing video games. And now if you walk into a 30-year-old apartment with video games, that's just a fucking 30-year-old. <laughs> that's just a regular 30-year-old who doesn't have his shit figured out, you know, because the adults and men especially have become more uh, infantilized. Let's just say men. Um, so it was this opportunity to have a different take on it mm. where, like, he was viewed as more of a not necessarily a delightful addition to whatever but there's a lot of different takes on it okay. he's kind of a man child uh we had a thing where his dad turns out to be a guy who's actually more immature than him really <laughs> um and, and anyway you know there were stages and there were actually two other kids who were going to get big with him who were his friends mm-hmm. and um it you know we had a reading at the atx uh the austin television festival with all these amazing people reading it um, so why is it dead? You know, it just, uh, it's a long, 
mm. technical nightmare mm. story about business that mm. doesn't, uh, unfortunately. But it, it's something that one day might find its way. Maybe? I hope so, yes. Yeah. Netflix wanted to buy it. They mm. couldn't work out a deal. So okay. it was very, it was super excruciating because it wasn't like nobody was interested. Right. <laughs> it, people, right. They, Netflix really wanted it and they just couldn't work the deal. Well, you know, there's always another day for things like that. Okay, so let's Could get be. back to Could one be. day at a time before we, before we wrap here. So. Yeah. It seems to me that you guys, it, beyond it being a Latina version of of One Day at a Time, it's also, I mean, anything that Norman's going to put his hands on is going to have sociopolitical ramifications that are important and long, re- far reaching. And you know, there's I I've noticed in the in the episodes that I've watched so far, they're dealing with feminism. They're dealing, I mean, even just the sun and and lying, which came up you know yeah. which, which was interesting that's not something a subject that's always dealt with but but then the for, the far more the whole deal of the the feminism and and it, as opposed to the culture so so you, do you feel like working with norman and working on this that you guys have like this moral responsibility to do something important yes Yes, I mean that's the good part. Like it, it's mm-hmm. not it's not a bad responsibility. We feel Gloria and I both want to write about stuff like that and not I think there's people who love like the Carmichael show is brilliant mm-hmm. and they really do more of a issue here's an issue we're going to take it put it on the kitchen table we all discuss it then you know they find a way to get at every angle of that issue and we have certain discussions that are like that and actually I think you said you're up, up to episode four mm-hmm. episode five gets into stuff like in a big issue as you'll see um, a couple of them um, but uh, on the other hand our approach is really to make them organic to the family we're not going to talk about stuff like sort of go out of our way to talk about stuff that doesn't matter to this family. Right. So because they're Cuban and Latino, um, because she's a single uh, mom, because the daughter, as you'll see, there's things that she's figuring out. Um, you know, these are all important issues uh, uh, that are important in society, but mm-hmm. they, you know, are flowing through our through our characters. So, you know, we always want to make sure not to be, you know, preachy or, you know, it's not about that. It's just telling a good story about these characters and, uh, and then, you know, the issues come through them. And so congratulations, by the way. I mean, the reviews have been, I don't, have, have you guys, Weezy, did you read any of the reviews? No, I would like to give, oh, me, I uh, would like to give one. Uh, uh, <laughs> would you? It's yes. magnificent. It's, oh, it's so funny and so real and so honest. And it, it just, it hits you right in the heart and it's talking about the things that a sitcom should be talking about in 2017. So you're just, it's, it's like, you don't have to worry about being at the top of the hill because Norman Lear is 93. (laughs) So, you know, you have that to look forward to. Yeah. And so, and he's still hitting it out of the park and with you. And that's just, it's beautiful. That's a great way to look at it. Thank you. <laughs> and I don't know if if what's going on, but are you already like? Have you already been given a go ahead? We haven't. Uh, we just dropped a few days ago. Yes, uh, a few days. Yeah. So uh, Netflix is trying to, I think, have a hold fast to a policy of not just picking everything up right away. Okay. We're very confident we're yes. going to get picked up. Yes. Um, but we won't hear probably for a couple more weeks, mm-hmm. and that's just what we've been told. Right. Well, you know, I, I have no doubt that there's going to be more season, many more seasons well, thank of you. one day at a time. You. Congratulations! So before we go, Mike, uh, thank you so much for doing this. It's thank been you. it's been great to uh, to hear your uh, because it, it seems like you've done. 
I, I don't know. I mean, I guess there was failure in there. I, I mean, Louis, Lucky Louie getting canceled, I guess, is a failure. <coughs> but it seems like it's been just... No, I, I mean, my career has been very fortunate. I would just say, because I know I'm sure a lot of writers listen to that who are in varying degrees of... Uh, of uh, you know, <laughs> depression. Let's put it that way, um, because that's what a writer is. No, I, 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 it does not matter how successful I've been. You know, at the height, it's writing is very hard. It never ever gets easier. This is not a pep talk. <laughs> I'm saying it's like there's no. It, it's easy when it's going well, but it's always going to be hard when it's going. You know, I had super amounts of stress during certain uh, couldn't sleep during parts of this season of One Day at a Time. Really? And, you know, so I'm just saying, like, yes, I, I'm, I've reached sort of a, you know, point where I'm, I'm able to call certain shots and be in charge of things or whatever. The doubt, the, all that stuff, it's always a, it's a, it's a journey. Every day you have to overcome the darkness inside uh, to get that stuff on the paper. And, you know, there's no special, like, oh, I'm good now. I'm so, look, I mm -hmm. did that. So now I know what I'm doing. You just never really know what you're doing. You just have to keep, trying but you're still bringing stuff in from home i'm assuming the fact that you made the characters the boy and the girl yes the, yes yes for sure for sure yeah um excellent okay so my last question mike uh how we wrap on here at the the road taken is uh to kind of humanize people that have had this success that have done something that the rest of us kind of still aspire to the big humanizer equalizer do you have a guilty pleasure mike is there anything that you do that uh, you hope nobody's watching when you do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we all do, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I don't, let's see, a guilty pleasure, I would say, I, I'm trying not to sound like, oh, my guilty pleasure is so awesome and like I don't even have a guilty <laughs> pleasure or whatever. I, I mean, I like watching, I like watching, you know, really sitting and, it's really, really hard for me to not try to do something while I'm watching something. I always feel like I need to be multitasking. Okay. Which is not right because of the profession I'm in. I should be focused on stuff. And then you throw in the phone too, but whatever. That's a different story. Um, you know, being on the phone or whatever. So for me, like Friday nights, my wife falls asleep on the couch, 10.06 every night. Um <laughs> And for me to put on a movie, mm -hmm. grab a glass of wine, <laughs> um, and just a movie that I've probably seen before. Uh -huh. That I like the like, on Friday I watched The Firm. Okay, great great movie. I haven't seen. It's, it's a great movie, yeah. but it's like, why am I watching that movie again? <laughs> you know, it's like Tom Cruise doing his Tom Cruise thing, and you know, it's a good movie. It's not like you know, it's it's a good solid movie. I remember yeah. liking it in the theater, and so like. I, meanwhile, I have a stack of screeners, you know, all, everything right. nominated. Right, and right. I'm complaining constantly that I have no time to watch it. You know? <laughs> but you're watching The Firm. I'm watching The Firm <laughs> on Sundance Channel because it's just on for some reason. <laughs> you know, so just watching, just like really, I guess it would be like almost like treating TV like it was TV in the 70s. What's on? I'm just going to sort of envelop myself into this and see where it goes, you know. I'm impressed because I pay for all the channels and I never watch any of them. Right. Ever. Right. I only watch Netflix and, you know, I, yeah. who, who watch it? Who? I don't flip channels anymore. I never, like, look to see You're what's on anymore. Men, <laughs> men will continue to flip channels. <laughs> <laughs> True. We don't they flip do. anymore, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, that, um, 
I think that qualifies. I feel guilty after I do it. I don't know if that's, you know. <laughs> well, and, and, that, and that counts. Okay. And, and Mike, thank you so much for being with us. And um, I have no doubt we're going to hear of that pickup on, on One Day at a Time. Congratulations for doing a funny and, and, and an important show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Take care. So, Wheezy DJ, mm-hmm. Mike Royce, huh? Yeah, he's outstanding. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, loved it. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite episode, actually. Wow, really? It is. And, yeah. and, and why, how, why so? Uh, because he aligns mostly with my aspirations more than any of the other guests. So ah. I was like, you know, all ears. Wow. Like, and, and did you, so did you, do you have a takeaway? Uh, I'm inspired. I want to go home and write. <laughs> so You know, it's interesting that you say that because so do I. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. Like, I just really want to go write. Like and work on some of the wow. I, I, I some I of the also, pilots that I have. I'm like, oh yeah. I love that. I, I'm not working on a pilot right now, but but he did inspire me to want to sit down and work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my takeaway is work ethic. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that, because it's essential, no matter what you want to do, you've got to be the hardest working person at it if you if you hope to succeed. Mm-hmm. I have so much guilt in this regard. <laughs> um, because there is so, you know, and, and, and it's craziness because I'll work till two in the morning. I will start, I will not move from my chair for like 16 hours. And when I finish, I feel guilty, but it's because my work ethic is kind of weird because I do a lot of different things. Yeah. So not a lot of what I do in that 16 hours is actually creative writing, mm-hmm. which is really what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. So much of what I do is this bullshit with getting stuff online and the social media and the uploading to the website and doing, and mm-hmm. that stuff takes a lot of time. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, 16 hours later, how much create how, how much creative words on page did I actually do? Well, you, you wrote an entire book, so let's not sell anything <laughs> short here. Thank you. And yeah. you, you do have to set... Um, you know, put yourself on a schedule where there this I'll do social media and then I'm going to stop. And I if I have this commitment, I'm going to write a piece for Huffington, Huffington Post and I'm not done until I'm done. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I'm, I'm going to share this little tidbit before we go today about um, how, how my process and how and how I did it. Um, I committed um, five thousand 532 days ago to writing five minutes a day. Um, this woman had come into my writing writing meeting and she had just said that she was a homeless, toothless junkie and uh, she had just come from the premiere of her independent feature and I was like, what? How did you do that? And she said, I, I committed to five minutes a day. And she said, in some days that's all I did was five minutes a day, but I did it every day. Mm-hmm. And some days the five minutes turned into five hours, yep. 10 hours, whatever. But and so I knew for myself, I'm an addict, you know, that's my personality, that if I committed to something like that, unless I became accountable, I could not be trusted to do it. Because I would, if I skipped one day, then I would skip two days, then I so would skip a week. So you mean you need a partner. So, so I have yeah, a partner. I turned to the woman sitting next to me, Liz Martinez, mm-hmm. and I asked her if I could send her an email every day and check in with her. And for 5,532 days, I have checked in with this woman every single day. And I have a woman who does that with me, Abby Cohn, who checks in with me. And she has for like 3,000 days or some crazy thing. 
and um, accountability. Because and that's so great. that's what I started on the Women Who Write group page was that I do these thirty day writing challenges. I decided to break it into smaller things. You just have to write for five minutes a day. Write up on the Women Who Write group page. Check in. Say that you did it. And then and we're now on challenge forty eight. We've been doing it for forty eight months. I should probably tell you how many tweets I've written. <laughs> well, well, you know, and that's fine. Do I get credit for those? Well, you know what? I, I sometimes, I didn't used to count any other writing other than writing on my book. And then I finished my book and then it became, oh, if I have to be writing um, a ma- an article or something. But what I've, what, now I cheat. Now if I write a really good post for Facebook, but I, I don't mean just like, you know, yeah. a promotion post, but I mean something from the heart and the soul. Yeah. It feels like a piece. I, then I count it. Yes. But, you know, but but to be like Mike. Do you keep those, by the way, to make a collaboration? And, you know, and, like the th- and I didn't for a long time. And I just started in the last, like, s- maybe four months taking the ones that I write and putting them in this keeper folder. Yeah, but you I can make a random random thoughts book. I, well, I think there's an a way to archive, to get the whole archive of all of our Facebook posts for all these mm. years. There's a way to get a file. Yeah. Like mine was so ridiculously big because I'm, I'm so <laughs> absurd with the thing mm. so that I couldn't even open it. But I think there's a way to do it. And I think it's a worthy thing to look back sure. at some of that. Um, but anyway, I, I, I wanted I want to just leave everybody tonight with with this idea with what you with what you brought up. What I'm up. trying to say is that Facebook and Twitter is sort of a way to journal and those are valid, but you need to turn that off and open a Word doc or a Pages doc and say this is what I'm creating and this deserves a certain amount of my undivided attention every day. And so I now sit here with witnesses and I now commit that my five minutes a day or more, however, it ends up being on any given day, I am going back to that. My demand is that that be creative writing and not social media. It no more. I don't care how clever it is on the Facebook. No, it's got to be for one of my projects. And I'm recommitting to that. And I challenge all of you out there who are listening to give five minutes a day to whatever, you know, not everybody's a writer, we have an audience of all kinds of people. Whatever it is that you love, whatever that it is that you aspire to, to yes. pick a dream. Whatever your dream is, let's set an intention. It's a new year. Um, give it five minutes a day. And my second suggestion to you is be accountable to somebody for it. And uh, just to keep you on the, on the straight and narrow. And uh, thank you guys so much for... A really great show. I, I, I feel I started this show feeling really kind of crappy and I'm not going to worry about that guy and <laughs> <laughs> what's going on outside on my car. Thanks so much. Can't wait to to be back with you all next Tuesday for another Road Taken, the Road Taken. The Road Taken is a radio-free podcast here whenever you are. A new show every Tuesday. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on the corner of Hollywood and Vine where I'll be using a bullhorn. Well, you can also get links to all this and more at VickiAbelson.com. That's V-I-C-K-I-A-B-E-L-S-O-N. Please follow, subscribe, review, lather, rinse, repeat. Till next Tuesday. And mine and binge our archive while you're at it. It's rich with information, inspiration, and fun, damn it. Thanks for listening. And if you like to watch, keep your eyes peeled for our next Facebook Live.